readers, listeners, all you lovely people who love literature. I'm so glad you're tuning in. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, uh, one-time adjunct professor of literature at Berkeley, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. The goal of these gatherings is always to elucidate and to entertain and to provide a really deep dive into any given text. But of course, I also am hoping to give you skills today that you can take uh, that will apply to anything that you choose to read in the future. A couple of quick tips. Uh, one is that it's really great if you have the text in front of you. It's not necessary, but we will be doing a lot of close reading, meaning that we'll be analyzing at the level of the sentence, of word choice and, um, and diction and syntax. And if you don't have the book in front of you, that's fine. I'm happy to walk you through it, but it's always a little bit, um, a little bit richer experience if you do have the text in front of you. Um, if you want a, an even more rich experience, you can tune in to the YouTube version of this where not only will you see um, the homemade outfit that I have that I'm wearing that corresponds um, at least loosely uh, with this beautiful world, Where Are You? by Sally Rooney. Um, but also, uh, I, I have on the YouTube channel, I have some uh, images that pertain to the novel. They're always sort of a little uh, tangential, a little orthogonal to the text itself, but it's so much fun for me to look and find them. Um, and readers report that they really get a lot out of looking uh, at different scenes, you know, from, from Ireland, for example, in this case, a couple of Sally Rooney, um, but also some sort of things that may have come up in the text that you wouldn't necessarily uh, even remember, um, but that I've got a really good visual of for you. Okay, um, and as always, we are going to, today's lecture will be delivered in three parts. The part today, uh, we always do, um, you know, sort of the same thing, same rigmarole. Today, we are going to be talking about why we should read this book, why I um, might be asking you to take 90 minutes out of your day to sit down and or walk the dog while listening to me talk about this book. Um, we'll also be talking about a very quick biographical um, interlude about Sally Rooney herself, and then we will dive into the text and take a close look at the prose that makes this book um, in, in lots of ways what it is. So first of all, um, the question is, why are we reading this book? And one very obvious reason is that it's really a fan favorite. A lot of you guys have read this book. Um, I get lots of questions about whether or not I like Rooney's work. Um, and I was really excited about the idea of diving in. It's a number one Times, uh, New York Times bestseller, and all of her books have been wildly popular. In fact, the other two, Normal People and Conversation with Friends, Normal People has already been made into an extremely successful and critically acclaimed uh, television series on Hulu, and Conversation with Friends is currently in production uh, by the BBC. So one of the reasons why I in particular wanted to talk about Sally Rooney is that I did read one of her books. Um, those of you who know me know that I have a terrible memory. And in fact, I can't remember which of the two books it was that I read, but I did read one of uh, her, her former novels and was just left cold by it. And I sort of didn't understand why that was the case. It wasn't clear to me at the time. Um, I mean, I could have explained it then, but it immediately left my head when I finished the book. I may not have even finished it. I mean, that's really how cold it left me. Um, I, I imagine I probably did. Um, but I had this kind of 
disconnect because what happened then is I watched normal people, the television series, because you all know I love television. Um, I watched the television series and was so taken by the characters and so um, by the language and the dialogue and these, uh, you know, the plight of these normal people. It was in fact normal people that I was watching, not to mention all of the visuals of Ireland that I thought, God, I need to figure out why it was that um, that the Sally Rooney novel did not, in fact, um, you know, resonate with me. So I really um, am looking forward to the chance uh, to share with you the reasons why I think the books are so popular and successful, but also a couple of my own reservations, which I think added up um, to enough kind of uh, literary discomfort on my part, or perhaps dissatisfaction, uh, to, to lead it, you know, so that I wasn't quite, um, you know, I wasn't a huge uh, Sally Rooney Stan. Okay, so um, uh, as far as biography of Sally Rooney, so she's obviously Irish, and those of you uh, who've known these seminars for a long time or even have spent any time on the site know that I am just in a total crazy Ireland um, obsession right now. And I'm just really, really taken with the tradition, a long, long, long-standing tradition of incredible you know, for for an island of its size, it's really just produced an incredible amount of really important literature, both very sort of foundational and also very experimental. You think of Beckett, you think of um, James Joyce, you think of, uh, it, it, they're just, you know, those are sort of the, the godfathers in lots of ways of the Irish oeuvre. But then recently we have this real burgeoning, in fact, right now of all of these Irish writers, a lot of whom are women, um, which I really am appreciating. So I was excited to go back and look at Rooney because she, in fact, is, I think, you know, arguably the most successful, certainly given television adaptations, uh, of, of the kind of Irish Renaissance or, or however you want to uh, to look at it, but the, the popularity of Irish fiction right now. So she was born in Ireland, out in the country, and I think that, you know, those of you who have finished Beautiful World, or even if you have begun it, um, she is very much like the Alice character. And she knew that that, um, you know, she talked about it in interviews. She knew that that was a comparison that people would make. And in fact, she she says that lots of it, nothing of this book is sort of coming directly from her life. And yet she acknowledges that in many ways, Alice is, um, you know, sharing some of the concerns that Sally Rooney herself is. So um, she lived in New York for a while. Um, she lived in Dublin for a while, and she lived in New York for a while as a fellow at the New York Public Library, which is a huge honor and a real accolade, um, and I think was very overwhelmed, much like Alice in the book, uh, by New York. And so moved back to Ireland, and not just Ireland, but to a tiny, the tiny little town near where she grew up. She's married to a guy named John. Finestra? I can't remember his last name. Um, but she's, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you with that. Um, so she's married to this guy named John. As far as I know, they don't have any children. They both are very close with their families, which was a little bit of a relief to me because um, motherhood is certainly problematic in these novels. So she and John live in, um, in Ireland in a very small town. He is a mathematics teacher. They met at Trinity uh, college in Dublin and, you know, have known each other for many, many years. And um, I, as far as I can tell, are very happily married. If you take a look at the acknowledgments of this book, which of course I did as part of my groupie-ness, um, as part of my sleuthing that I always do um, before I have these seminars with you all. So, okay. Now that we've discussed um, why we're reading this book and then also this notion of um, who Sally Rooney is, a little bit about her background, um, 
I want to go ahead and dive into the novel. Okay, so one of the things that um, I'm hoping to accomplish while we are together in this reading experience, while we are communing over literature, is this idea that, um, yes, we are diving into this particular book, but also I'm aware that a lot of you um, love the idea of, of having your skills sort of honed or, or um, developing new skills in terms of literature so that you can feel like you're really getting the most out of any reading experience. And to that end, the most basic thing, the easiest thing, the thing I encourage people to do right away is simply to pay more attention. So um, if we take a look at the title here, Beautiful World, Where Are You? A couple of things. Um, you know, this book is very preoccupied with beauty. There's a lot of sort of direct conversation, uh, mostly in the epistolary part of the novel, the, the letters that are written back and forth that really um, they're asking a lot of big questions about what is beauty? And then also this question of um, what is the value of beauty? Does, does beauty matter, essentially? Um, but then there also is this question, of course, um, this beautiful world. And a lot of the book is very preoccupied um, with the state of the world. So this is a book that is choosing to take on some very, very large questions, among them climate change and, um, you know, wealth inequality and famine and political instability. So there is this sense of the precariousness of the world. We're, in fact, very, very far from a beautiful world which makes sense why she is asking this question, beautiful world, where are you? Um, it turns out, it's important to note here that it, there's no question mark um, at the end of this. I think the way that syntactically, the way that it is set up here, you, you have to read it as a question, um, but I do find it interesting that where are you, um, Is there is no question mark at the end. So I think there's a sense of, um, of asking the question because syntactically where are you has to be it's not you know it, it's not a, a, a declarative sentence that she simply adds a question mark to it is in fact because of the inversion um, and the interrogative question at the beginning it is in fact a question but I like the idea of not having the question mark just partially because I love subtle punctuation um, but also because in this case I think maybe there's a question of, of this is sort of an investigation. It's not so much asking the question of the reader. It's going to offer up sort of one um, one answer maybe to that question. Uh, okay, but the the title of a book often is just you know you hear the title of the book. It's on the front, and then you kind of move on. In this case, though, the title has a couple of different important uh, mentions, a couple of important uh, resonances throughout the throughout the novel. Um, in part of my sleuthing, I always like to look right first at the acknowledgments. That's one of the places where I get a lot of my information right up top. Um, and I would like to take you all there to the top of the acknowledgments. This is on page 355 of the paperback. The title of this book is a literal translation of a phrase from Friedrich Schiller's poem, Die Götter Griechenlandes. My German? Not good. I do not have any German. Thank goodness she's going to give us a little uh, translation here. The Gods of Greece, first published in 1788. So that sort of end of the, not end of the Enlightenment, but kind of heart of the Enlightenment. So, um, you know, a hearkening back to the classics that you have that becomes even more important in Romanticism. Um, but, but a time that's sort of very rational, but also is, is pushing against um, the classics in some ways. Classics meaning like Greek and Roman mythology, that kind of thing. In the original German, the phrase reads, Schöne Welt, wo bist du? 
um, beautiful world, where are you? Franz Schubert set a fragment of the poem to music in 1819. So that's much more in the middle of the, the romantic era when people were concerned about death and decadence in the true sense of that word, you know, like a falling um, and of, of time flying and of tragedy. Um, so, so these are she's situating us in a time um, where crises were uh, creating were, were, were very sort of um, uh, important in terms of the production of art. Beautiful World, Where Are You? was also the title of the 2018 Liverpool Biennial, which I visited during the Liverpool Literary Festival in October of that year. So October 2018, um, you know, firmly before COVID, but sort of heading up to, um, you know, what was this incredible time of upheaval in our country. I mean, sorry, in our world, in our beautiful world. Um, and in fact, it's, you know, COVID comes into this book uh, at the very end. So there is this sense of, of COVID and global pandemic and all of the tragedies that came along with that crisis um, as sort of looming throughout this. Um, what I find really interesting in this chunk of the acknowledgements here is she's not tipping her hand in terms of how we're supposed to um, interpret this this phrase. So yes, we know that Schiller and um, and I mean I don't actually know as much as I should about um, Schiller and about Schubert, um, but these are German philosophers hearkening back to the Greeks. They're they're real sort of romantics in the sense of you know they were from the the, the era of the end of the Enlightenment and beginning of the Romantic era. Um, but it's, it's a very neutral thing. She's telling us what the words mean, and she's telling us these, these important um, you know, German thinkers, these heavy-duty philosophers, were really preoccupied with this notion of where is this beautiful world. But she's not, um, she's not sort of giving us the nuance or the polarity of it. She's simply stating where these things came from and letting us make our own uh, conclusions about them. There is one other mention of the title, which I think is important and telling. It's on page 262. So this is a little bit, um, you know, it's not halfway through the book. We're more kind of three quarters, maybe even five eighths. Wait, that's not the way the math works. <laughs> we're, we're more like three quarters or like three quarters plus through the book. Five eighths is not right. Um, but what we have um, is this is the reunion of the two women, of Alice and Eileen. So there's this real sense here of, um, of sort of these two beings who are very close and very intimate friends finally having their, their reunion. And in fact, they are also uh, together with Simon, who is such an important uh, you know, presence in the novel. So when we get down to the bottom of the page here, that's what I'd take a look at. They're hugging. The two women are hugging on the train platform. Or were they in this moment unaware, or something more than unaware? Were they somehow invulnerable to, untouched by vulgarity and ugliness, glancing for a moment into something deeper, something concealed beneath the surface of life, not unreality, but a hidden reality, the presence at all times, in all places of a beautiful world? So I love this echo here. And in fact, here we do have a question mark. And yet this to me seems even less like a question. I mean, she is asking our, our narrator, who is this very, very distanced uh, third person narrator, is asking us like, maybe they always are a part of a beautiful world, but it's not a normal interrogative. You know, it's sort of one of these statements. It's like, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. 
Um, and, and my sense is that because she gives us this second option, um, second, because this one comes second and because uh, it, these are the words that are last and they carry extra weight because they come later in the paragraph. In fact, they're at the end of this paragraph and they're before a space break. So they're even more important than lots of other words um, that have come before them in this case. But there is this idea of this beautiful world as, again, not being so much a question, but sort of um, of Rooney offering, or the narrator in this case, offering up this idea of maybe this is a beautiful world that is always, in fact, present. Um, I think it's really interesting here, too, about the words invulnerable and untouched by. So one of the things um, that the book is really playing with is this idea of vulnerability or invulnerability. So, for example, Alice seems like someone who is sort of invulnerable, and Simon seems like someone who is invulnerable. Um, but Alice, in fact, is very vulnerable. She's the one who has spent time in a psychiatric hospital, but she has this real um, you know, system of defense that seems to be working fairly well for her. And Eileen, in lots of ways, is very vulnerable. Um, and, and Felix also seems very, very invulnerable, but in fact, is someone whose vulnerability, um, especially once his voice comes out in that incredible singing scene, he's someone who does, in fact, um, not only encourage vulnerability in Alice, but also is sort of um, forthcoming about his own vulnerability, really, in some ways, from the start. So I love this kind of just brief mention, this brief echo of the title, um, you know, at this point, three quarter plus through the novel. Uh, I love, I always love it when a title, it pops up like this somewhere in the text. I just think it's, um, it's like you've been on a treasure hunt and you found one of the little treasures. But in this case, the significance of it is, um, is really pretty, uh, pretty important when we're looking at the larger context of the book. Okay, now that we have talked about the title, we're gonna go ahead and dive into the first page of the novel. So um, you will hear me say again and again, um, one of the very most important things um, when starting a novel like this is, well, or any novel, is to take your time with the first paragraph, certainly the first sentences. Lots of times it will sort of teach you, it's sort of a key, um, not only about sort of how to read a, a text if it's a challenging text, but also um, it's a good indicator of where you might want to focus your attention. So um, we're going to dive right in. It's, it's often so interesting, I think, to finish a novel and then go back to this original paragraph, because if the book is worth its salt, you're going to um, have a lot of sort of nuance and echo that, that's a real like, sort of reaffirmation of what you have discovered throughout the course of the book. Okay, we're on page three. A woman sat in a hotel bar watching the door. Her appearance was neat and tidy, white blouse, fair hair tucked behind her ears. She glanced at the screen of her phone on which was displayed a messaging interface and then she looked back to the door again. Okay, in this first little bit, a woman. So we have this idea of one woman, um, this generic business is very important at the beginning. So if something, um, when we have the generic idea of a woman, um, first of all, it, she's she's in this kind of solitude. Um, it, you know, one of the issues is that Alice has really has isolated herself for better and for worse. Um, so there's this idea of, of a woman being isolated. And, and in much the same way, Eileen herself is also isolated in Dublin. So there's, there's this um, idea of everyone being sort of isolated on his or her own. So the fact that she's sitting in a hotel bar, so a hotel um, is, is what we call in literature a liminal space. So whenever you see a character in a space like a hotel or 
a, a, a train station or even a doorway or a, um, you know, a, a, a breezeway or a hallway, any space that's kind of between other spaces or a space that's kind of both public and private, like a hotel, um, those are places where you can have a lot of sort of action happening or you can at least, um, you know, see the potential for action because this is a, a character who sort of... Um, on the move in some ways. You know, this is a character who is between two different spaces. Um, in this case, she's at not only at the hotel, but she's at the hotel bar. Um, presumably their tables also, but she's sitting at the bar, which is a place of a lot of flux, um, you know, for better and for worse. So it's important that she's not only at a bar, but she's at a hotel bar. It's also very important that Alice, in this case, is watching the door. We don't know that it's Alice yet, but she's watching the door. So she has her back, um, you know, not, I won't say against the wall, but you know her her back is such that she is facing um, the door. So there is right from the start this sense of invulnerability. She is not someone who's going to be sneaked up on, um, and she's someone who's watchful. She's watching the door. There's also this idea though of the door as being um, like a source of potential. You know, someone might walk through the door, but also of danger. So there's this idea of a very liminal space of the door um, that is also within the liminal space of, of the hotel bar. The appearance neat and tidy is one of these kind of cliche things that, that um, there are not a lot of cliches in this book, but that was one of those ones where I think we can forgive her the cliche, even though they tend to um, not be great in literature. Um, but in this case, it's just a quick kind of signaling to us like something about her. She's neat and tidy, which is interesting because as the book moved on, I forgot that she was blonde. Um, and I also sort of forgot that she's kind of neat and tidy and has her ducks in a row, um, to use another cliche. Uh, but, but there is something kind of... Um, uh, you know, pulled together about her. She's clearly very competent. She is this person who is very successful in her world and manages actually very well out in even the larger world. Um, okay, and then the screen of the phone. It's interesting. In some ways, the the um, the novel feels sort of timeless, but there, the use of technology and then, of course, COVID at the end clearly marks it as this kind of, um, you know, late whatever, 2018, 2019, well, not 2019, but, uh, you know, the, the sort of lead up into, well, yes, 2019, yeah, because we're heading into COVID at the end. Um, okay, so, and she's looking at a messaging interface, so right from the beginning, she has this phone, which is a means of communication, and there's language involved, and there's this question of whether or not she's going to be able to communicate. Um, she has the means of communication, but, you know, is she going to be able to communicate with whomever it, this person is, um, you know, someone who seems like they might come through the door. Okay, it was late March, the bar was quiet, and outside the window to her right, the sun was beginning to set over the Atlantic. Um, early March is one of these, it's like, it, it's not, spring begins on March 21st, so we're still kind of in the winter, but we're at the end of the winter. And but you have to imagine in a place like Ireland that early March is cold and and probably fairly brutal um, and, and certainly damp and not spring or summer. But we are moving towards spring and summer. The importance of seasons being that, you know, winter is a time of sort of dying off and death and, um, you know, spring and spring and summer. Spring is certainly a time of growth and renewal. And then summer is a time of sort of, you know, uh, more growth and harvest. Uh, so we have this, oh, sorry, it's late March. So we're, we're actually at the beginning of spring here. Um, but this is important. To her right, the sun was beginning to set over the Atlantic. So there's this idea of the sun setting is important in the sense that 
Again, we're at the beginning of the book. She's setting up the context for us. The sun is very much setting literally on the world. It's not just, um, you know, the sun is setting on the empire or something, or the sun is setting on, um, you know, it's not that the sun is going down um, and, and something is losing its glory. It's literally like this book is very concerned with the sort of twilight of, of humanity. So there is this sense of the, the sun setting on the entire book as a whole. It was four minutes past seven, then five, six minutes passed. Briefly and with no perceptible interest, she examined her fingernails. Couple of things here. All of the emphasis on numbers and times in the book are very interesting to me. Um, lots of, the interest in time, I think is, is significant and I, and I like it because she's concerned about time passing and concerned about um, you know, a sense of urgency about fixing some of these problems. But there's also a real preoccupation with sort of what have these people done with their lives? They're at their late 30s, they're all still single. Um, you know, some of them are successful in their careers and not very fulfilled. Others have, you know, jobs that they don't really love, um, and yet they seem to be kind of making their way through the world. So we have this sense of, 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 um, of a detail that I think is significant because it's telling us about time. But then this one about um, briefly and with no perceptible interest, she examined her fingernails. So there are lots and lots of details in this book, and I'm going to not... Um, harp too much on on what I found as sort of, um, you know, the shortcomings of this prose. But one of them is that it, there is a lot of detail that is given that I think is not, um, it raises the expectation that th this is a significant detail, and yet it doesn't seem like a significant detail. We even see here that um, with no perceptible interest, she's examining something. I mean, and yes, we can talk about this is sort of nihilistic, or this is, um, and maybe I'm answering my own criticism, you know, with, with the reason why this is significant. She's looking at a part of her body, and maybe she's alienated from that part of the body. So I think probably we could read into all of these different details um, some sort of satisfying explanation. But in my um, three quarters of an MFA program that I did, um, gosh, almost a decade ago, one of the um, teachers had the best analogy, which is that your reader, you as the reader, are wearing kind of a backpack as you are scaling the mountain of this book. And each time there's a detail, it's like a rock and you're putting it in your backpack. And, and, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Obviously, if the person named this out of all of the details in that person's imagination, there's going to be some significance to this detail. The problem is, if your reader is constantly filling her backpack full of rocks and they are not, in fact, uh, important details, if they seem arbitrary or if the reader starts saying, like, why do I need to know the color of her blouse? Why do I need to know that it's eight minutes past, um, you know, four or five when, or seven or whatever time this is? Let's see. Yeah, seven when he walks through the door, you know, you have this sense of like, wait, am I supposed to be keeping track of all of this stuff? So I, there was a little bit of detail fatigue uh, that I experienced throughout the book. Um, okay, at eight minutes past seven, I'm not sure why we need to know that, a man entered through the door. Again, we have this generic um, idea. He looked around, scanning the faces of other patrons, and then took his phone out and checked the screen. So I like this kind of um, the parallel that we have here with, you know, we have her coming in and she has her technology and she has this screen and he has the exact same technology and he has the same thing. And in fact, we use telephone and screen and telephone and screen. So there's this real parallel between the two of them that I think is very nice and very effective. Um, he looked, but uh, sorry, he was... 
slight and dark-haired with a narrow face. He looked around, scanning the faces of the other patrons, then took his phone out and checked the screen. The woman at the window noticed him, but, beyond watching him, made no additional effort to catch his attention. They appeared to be about the same age, in their late 20s or early 30s. She let him stand there until he saw her and came over. So just to tie up this very first paragraph here, um, this is, so it's very interesting because a lot of the things that are going to come up later in the novel are all present here. So you have these two people in this liminal space where lots of flux is happening and lots of possibility is there. Um, And they, you know, they're connected in the sense that you get the sense that they have some sort of electronic connection through their phones. They've had some communication. And yet um, we have Alice making no attempt um, to, you know, he, he, uh, she has no attempt to sort of catch his attention. So you have this sense of, of distance between the two of them. And again, this kind of invulnerability slash vulnerability of these two people. So I think what we have um, at the, right from the very start in this very first sentence is this idea of people in isolation, people who are very relatable. It's a man, it's a woman in a hotel bar. It's all very sort of normal. The word normal comes up so, so many times in this book. Um, but you have all of this complexity in the relationship, the fact that it feels like they're not communicating as well as they might be, um, which I really, I think this is kind of an outstanding first paragraph. And um, it really did, um, uh, digging in, allowed me um, to really see some of the reasons why I think Sally Rooney is so popular. So in order to find out more about her prose, um, and why the prose is so amazing, and uh, then you should tune in to the second uh, chunk of this uh, meeting on Sally Rooney's really um, very beautiful, beautiful world, Where Are You? everybody. So glad you're back. Um, We are going to continue our discussion of Sally Rooney's beautiful world, Where Are You? We're going to dive a little bit deeper into um, the quality of the prose and some of the reasons, some of like the really great things that I think that she is doing with the novel. Uh, We're then going to talk about the narrative stance, which is really interesting, uh, certainly in this novel. And then we're going to talk about um, the details that I was discussing uh, that I alluded to a little bit in the first section um, and and why some of them I think are really telling and important. And then why some of them, in fact, are not um, not as carefully chosen. That's a diplomatic way of saying it um, as some of the others. Okay, so if you recall, we looked at the first page, page three, and we had this kind of um, like this kind of series of things that happen. We have a woman in the bar. She's looking at a piece of technology. There's the question of communication um, and there's a question of sort of her vulnerability or invulnerability and sort of whether or not she's very sort of opened or closed. And we have... um, this this question of, of of communication again. So when we when I take you guys through these novels, usually um, in the first part, and we sort of dive in. There's really just the first paragraph of that very first chapter that we take a close look at. What's interesting to me uh, in this book is that we have. Um, this this epistolary thing that's happening. So epist- an epistle is just a letter. 
So I am not a huge fan of the epistolary novel in general. So like a good example of that is Dangerous Liaisons by Laclos, um, Les, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Um, but so that's a like kind of an old timey one, but there are um, examples of letters back and forth um, I can't think of any examples of contemporary ones right now. Again, I'm not a huge fan of the epistolary novel if it's entirely letters, just because I find the scope a little bit narrow. You have someone who's obviously always writing to someone else, so there is this kind of narrow um, narrowness to the prose. It's a little too pointed for me at times. But in this novel, um, I, I, I didn't mind it. In fact, I thought it was fine. I think it was very important for Rooney, and she spoke about this in um, in interviews. It was a very important way for her to explore some of these philosophical questions. And they're philosophical questions that are actually very germane to her because she herself was very concerned about you know, um, the, the place of beauty and the value of beauty and the plight of the world and whether or not the contemporary novel actually means anything. Um, so I, I, I do think that having this uh, exchange, this this sort of electronic letter exchange between the two women is a good way of uh, not only, of course, giving us their perspectives and sort of deepening our understanding of these two women, but it's also a good place for them to sort of air uh, these kind of larger concerns. So I felt like we looked at the very first paragraph, but it wasn't actually indicative of all of the beginnings of these novels. So, I mean, of each chapter in the novel. So we're gonna take a look at page 16 um, because it's almost like a new start. So we have this kind of the woman in the bar who turns out to be Alice waiting for Felix. Um, but then we have this kind of surprising thing at the beginning of chapter two here where it reads, Dear Eileen, so, you know, at first I had no idea who Eileen was, and I was also curious about who was writing. At this point, I didn't know, you know, you, it could have been Felix, it could have been Alice, it could have been someone else. Um, until you get into the rhythm, it's not totally clear, which I think is fine. I think maybe she means to destabilize us a little bit. Um, okay. Dear Eileen, I've waited so long for you to reply to my last email that I'm actually, imagine, writing you a new one before receiving your reply. In my defense, I've gathered up too much material now, and if I wait for you to start, sorry, and if I wait for you, I'll start forgetting things. You should know that our correspondence is my way of holding on to life, taking notes on it and thereby preserving something of my otherwise almost worthless or even entirely worthless existence on this rapidly degenerating planet. I mean, that is a bummer. So this is someone who's in lots of ways, um, the communication is failing her in the sense that Eileen has not gotten back to her yet. And yet she literally says, um, our correspondence is my way of holding on to life. And it's a double entendre. She means holding on to kind of the details of life, but literally it also feels like a lifeline in lots of ways. Um, and she goes on to spell that out. Otherwise, almost worthless or even entirely worthless existence on this rapidly degenerating planet. It's overstated enough here that um, that you get the sense that this is not like a really serious, well, at least I had the sense that this was not a super serious cry for help here. It was simply her saying, um, you know, sort of wanting to make clear that, that this communication, that this um, uh, correspondence is very important to her and that she is having a lot of doubts. She's someone who certainly wears her doubts on her sleeve, at least when she's talking to Eileen. Um, and then, of course, the idea of uh, her existence on this rapidly degenerating planet. 
if the first time we're hearing Alice's voice, that's the end, you know, of kind of this first big chunk of text, it's really significant. Um, and in fact, the idea of the planet's degeneration uh, is is something that is uh, borne out. It's something that is really preoccupies the entire novel. The word degenerating is interesting too because you have this idea of generation and generations. You know, she could have said deteriorating. She could have said, um, you know, dying. There are lots of things she could have said, but degenerating is interesting because it's kind of the inverse of the idea of generation. And this book is in fact very uh, preoccupied with the idea of generations, subsequent generations, maternity, paternity. Um, you know, do we have children? Do we not? Do we generate? Do we not? Um, so, so this idea of degeneration, I think lots of times Rooney's word choice is very important and, and very well done. Um, and then I was actually pleased, we're now gonna look on page 21. So we had that first paragraph of the very first novel, the way she opens the whole book, I think is, is really well done, a lot of well-chosen things. Then we have this, this uh, letter, the epistolary part. And then on page three, we had this nice kind of echo. At 20, sorry, not page three, beginning of chapter three, page 21. At 20 past 12 on a Wednesday afternoon, a woman sat behind a desk in a shared office in Dublin city center, scrolling through a text document. She had very dark hair, swept back loosely into a tortoiseshell clasp, and was wearing a gray sweater tucked into black cigarette trousers. Using the greasy roller of her computer, sorry, using the soft greasy roller on her computer mouse, she skimmed over the document, eyes flicking back and forth across narrow columns of text, and occasionally she stopped, clicked, and inserted or deleted characters. Most frequently, she was inserting two full stops into the name W.H. Auden in order to standardize its appearance as W.H. Auden. Okay, a couple of things here. One is that um, I love it, full stop, it's a period, you know, but um, in, I, I love the fact that the sort of, um, you know, the Irish, uh, the way that you would say that would be a full stop. So she's adding the periods into W.H. Auden, um, which we'll get to in a moment. But I love the parallels that we have here. We have this preoccupation with time at 20 past 12. Again, I'm a little bit like, I'm not sure we need all of these specific numbers, but when they are per pertaining to time, I think it is this sense of, um, of, of time passing and, and, and urgency. Uh, a woman sat behind a desk. So we, we have her in this public space, very much like we had Alice at the bar. We now have Eileen in this, it's her workspace. We have her in this public space. She's seated, but she's not at a bar. She's at um, you know, her work desk. And she too is using technology. So she has a screen in front of her. She's using her mouse. Um, it, but what she's doing does not have to do in fact with communication. So she's someone who, um, you know, it, it, well, and in the case of Alice and Felix, you know, it's sort of, there's the, the um, potential for communication, but they're not actually communicating in that first chunk. In this case, we have, um, you know, she's hoping to communicate at some point the importance of Auden in some sort of, you know, abstruse, totally unread literary magazine. Uh, I apologize, I mean, having published in many a literary magazine, I mean, wow, that sounds really self-aggrandizing, but believe me, it is not, considering that most have no readership whatsoever. Um, but this, this, um, this idea of her sort of wanting to communicate the importance of this really important poet, um, you know, it, but we don't have anything about his poetry, it's just sort of his name, um, which the intertexts in this novel are very important. 
um, and, and hopefully we'll get to those in the third section. But what she's doing is she's she's meaning to communicate. She's attempting to communicate. So it's a type of writing that's that's kind of like the communication that we have in the very first page. And yet this communication that's taking place here is also kind of this dead end communication because she's, um, you know, she's correcting something that's going to go into a, a, a magazine that no one, in fact, is going to read. Um, at the very end of the book, apparently satisfied, she saved her work and closed the file. So there's also a sense here, um, you know, of openings and closings, very much like we have the door uh, in the bar section in the very first part. Here we have this idea of, of um, this file being open, and she's playing with the text, um, albeit in a very kind of, um, you know, just a simple punctuation kind of a way. Um, but she's closing the file. She seems satisfied. We don't know if she is or not. And yet she's closing the file. So there's this sense of... of of things shutting down and things closing. And in fact, for Eileen, that really is one of the main preoccupations. I'm sorry, that's one of my dogs coughing. It's really windy here today in California, um, like crazy windy, like we have no power. Um, and which seemed very fitting because it feels in, you know windy and a little inclement like um, maybe Ireland, although for sure a lot sunnier. Um, but we have four dogs and they're all here in my office with me, um, just really nervous. One of them is sneezing a lot there. Um, but sorry for that little interlude um that we do we have this really nice parallel between the two women when we're we're meeting them and i loved that kind of um how the parallel lines up so nicely and how we can really dig into it and realize that it has to do with communication or the lack thereof it has to do with technology it has to do with time and it's in these kind of public liminal spaces that have to do with communication and um the complexity of um uh, you know of relationships or lack thereof among people uh and so let's look at auden okay so we've talked about the quality of the prose i want to move on um to the narrative structure in the novel it's really interesting because there's this incredible distance in the narrative structure and um that can work well sometimes so it's a third person narration except obviously when the two women are, are writing their letters then it's first person they're saying i did this and i did that um, most of it though is third person um but we have this real distance that I think is, um, it's as if the story is being told from very far away. You know, a woman did this, and um, it's sort of like somebody um, is watching from really, really far away and doesn't know anything uh, about what's happening in the minds of these characters. So, and I think this can be very effective in lots of ways. Um, it's a pretty common trope in a lot of realist fiction and a lot of naturalist fiction, um, where the idea is to just show a whole world. Um, but in some instances, I found, found our narrator here a little bit too distant, and we're gonna look at um, why that is the case. So in terms of this narrative distance, we see it throughout in all sorts of different places, but it's it's notable, this is just an example, on page 27, when, Al, uh, sorry, when um, Eileen is entering her apartment. No one else was home, but the layout and interior suggested that she was not the sole occupant. A small, dim living room with one curtain window facing the river led onto a kitchenette with an oven half-sized fridge unit and sink. From the fridge, the woman removed a bowl covered in cling film. She disposed of the cling film and put the bowl in the microwave. 
So we have it almost feels forensic. It's kind of this um, th- like this this uh, uh, like very distanced description. And the problem arises not so much um, when we have a description of of Eileen's kitchen and her apartment. Although some of those details, I'm I'm curious why they are significant because every detail should be significant. But there's also just that sense of, um, of of distance that we're maintaining from everyone. We know nothing about what Eileen is thinking as she is going about these motions. And it's okay um, when we simply have the description. It gets a little trickier when we have descriptions of people. So meaning of people interacting with one another. So um, sometimes it can get downright sort of inscrutable. Let's look at page 251. So on 251, um, oh, this is interesting. So this is um, an example of just someone in his mind. So even when we are seeing the interior of a character, it's sometimes a little hard to parse what we are supposed to make of even the thoughts of the character. Um, So at the top of 251, he's reflecting on the time that Eileen's mother was pregnant. This is Eileen's father. Uh, The first time she was pregnant, how something had come over her, some seriousness, some strange purpose in her words, in her movements, and he found it uncomfortable. It made him want to laugh. He didn't know why. She was changing, turning her face away from him towards some other experience. In time it passed, Lola was born, healthy, thank God, and he told himself they'd never do it again. Too much strangeness for one life. So I think my difficulty here is that um, a seriousness had come over, a strange purpose to her words. So those things are not necessarily negative. It's a little hard to know what we're supposed to make of them. But then um, the narrator tells us it makes him, it made him want to laugh. So then you're thinking, wait, is this something that's humorous to him? What sort of laughter are we talking about? And then when he says um, she was born and he told them they would never do it again there's like this weight that comes all of a sudden out of nowhere and as a reader you're like wait i'm not sure that i i followed him on that journey i'm not sure that i understood the fact that he was so off put uh by by the experience of his wife being pregnant okay and then another time where where the writing is sort of inscrutable is on page 279 um So this is at the top of 279. It's kind of a minor passage, but it gives you a sense of of the distance that this narrator maintains and how hard it can be sometimes to understand the significance, even when we're told quite a bit uh, about the situation. For some reason, Eileen was holding in her lap the silk blouse she had purchased earlier in the day. Occasionally, while Alice spoke, she petted the blouse absentmindedly as if it were an animal. She seemed in one sense to be giving her conversation with Alice a very deep and sustained attention. But in another sense, she hardly seemed to be listening at all. So this is so interesting to me. It's a green blouse. We know that it's silk. We know that. Um, You could think of green as representing Ireland. You could think of green as representing, um, you know, growth and vitality. You could think of it. It's it's she buys it at a vintage shop. So it's telling us a bit about her ecological sensibilities. Um, And and maybe you could look at this here as a, a like a pre a harbinger of her pregnancy. The fact that it's in her lap and she's sort of stroking it like an animal. But I I don't find it particularly um, 
successful because it's a little hard to understand what we are supposed to make of this. It just seems like sort of a strange thing. Um, when she begins, for some reason, Eileen was doing this, you know, she's saying essentially like there was no obvious reason. And it's tricky because as a reader, I was like, well, if it's for some reason, meaning like for no good reason, then why do we need to know this detail? And then there are quite a few parts in the book where um, Rooney gives us kind of, it might be this or it might be that. We saw that during the um, the time when the, the women are hugging. And it might be, um, you know, that they're sort of, uh, you know, beyond all of the ug- ugliness around them. Or it might be that they're surrounded by beauty, which are obviously two very different things. In this case, um, uh, she seemed in one sense to be giving her conversation with Alice a very deep and sustained attention, but in another sense, she hardly seemed to be listening at all. So it's fine to have a character who is ambivalent about things, but the trickiness arises when lots of characters seem ambivalent about lots of things and where we don't have enough clarity. I kept having these experiences where I would be like, wait, does, do, you know, does, does Simon really love her? And does she really love Simon? And of course that is the big question and we are supposed to be wondering that, but it's very, um, and, and I guess you could, uh, you know, argue that what Rooney is trying to do is, is, is show the complexity there. But I did find it frustrating as a reader um, when it really did seem uh, just sort of inscrutable. Like I couldn't quite understand the point that she was, um, the, the point that I was supposed to be gathering. Uh, There were also times where I felt like um, our narrator was withholding information, which is kind of never a great idea. It always uh, feels, if there's a good reason, if you have an unreliable narrator or if you have, um, you know, some sort of dramatic irony where it's important that a character doesn't know something even though the reader does know it, um, unless it's something very purposeful like that, it never feels good um, as a reader to, to realize that the narrator has been withholding information. Um, so if we look at page 14, um, there are a couple of bombshells, too, where I think there was one about, um, I don't know, somebody writing a book and one about a boyfriend where I was like, wait, I did not know that information. And then you're just kind of plopping it in um, later in a, in a conversation where it's surprising to me, the reader, but it's not surprising to the people who are having the conversation. Those sorts of surprises are great. In, for example, Virginia Woolf during the time passes uh, section of To the Lighthouse, which actually there's a lot of time passing kind of vibe in a bunch of um, different passages of this Sally Rooney book. But um, in, in, in that case, it's very artful to have these surprises like the sudden death of someone in a war to have that um, come as a surprise to the reader just as it would be a surprise to the family finding out. That's excellent. But in these cases, the reader is surprised, but no one else in the book is surprised. So it's not not particularly effective. One example of this kind of withholding is at the bottom of page 14. For a few seconds, oh, this is right when, um, this is a great example, when Alice and Felix have gone on their date and he has come back to her house at the rectory uh, and, and, and we have the two of them together. For a few seconds, she stood there in the room very still while he wandered around a little and pretended to look at things. They knew then, both of them, what was about to happen, though neither could have said exactly how they knew. And at that point, I was like, I don't know what they know. And, you know, it's only page 14. So I was like, maybe this is a trope that that Rooney is going to use throughout the novel. And in fact, she does do it throughout the novel, but it's frustrating because they know something and you don't know what it is as the reader. 
Um, so they knew then, both of them, what was about to happen, though neither could have said exactly how they knew. She waited impartially while he continued glancing around until finally, perhaps with no more energy to delay the inevitable, he thanked her and left. So I was like, wait, why did he leave? Like, I just didn't, I, I wasn't given enough information before this to understand what was happening. And, and I think that sense of being unsure about why he was leaving and being surprised by it, you know, if if um, Alice were also surprised by it, that would be one thing. But in this case, we're finding out a couple of sentences before he leaves that they both know he's going to leave. But as the reader, you're, you're sort of outside the circle, which never feels great. Uh, another example of this kind of withholding is on page 340. I'm going to zip up to 340 here. Um, sorry. Uh, that is not... Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. At the top of 340 here, you guys, this was like I wanted to die a little bit. In fact, my marginalia here says no with like 100 O's. Because, so... Um, you'll remember the sentence when I read it. It's when um, we have uh, Alice is finally together with um, Simon. Sorry, wow, gosh. Eileen is together with Simon. And it says, th th and this is sort of, you know, one of their intimate lovemaking sessions. Pressing her face to his throat and she whispered something only he could hear. Oh my God, you guys, it's the worst. I mean, honestly, you can do it at the end of Lost in Translation if you're Sofia Coppola and it's like, just absolutely just gut-wrenching and incredible. You cannot, I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't say you can't, and maybe you guys loved that part of the book, but it was so frustrating. So this is page 340. We're getting toward the end of the book, and I was like, there is not, it's fine for them to have a lot of intimacy that I don't know about, but there's plenty of that. I mean, I only know so much about their intimacy. So when there's something happening that's supposed to be telling me about their intimacy and the information is literally actually like purposefully withheld from the reader, from me, who has invested all this time in this novel, I found it incredibly frustrating. Also a little bit of a like poor man's Sofia Coppola there. So withholding information throughout, it was very frustrating for me. Um, but I also want to talk before we um, end this section two, in which we have discussed um, some of the, the outstanding things about the prose, um, and then also uh, <laughs> some of my issues with the distanced narrator. Um, there, there are some sort of indications of why I looked long and hard um, of why she chooses to have this kind of distance from with the narrator, you know, the, the narrator being distanced from the, the characters, which in turn, of course, makes the reader feel distanced from the characters. Uh, so, so let's look at page 37. Um, this is Felix describing himself, but it's actually also a very good example of, um, of one of the characters voicing something that I think could apply to many of the characters. It's kind of um, at the bottom of 37 here. In my family, we just don't discuss things. Oh my gosh, wait, it's Aiden. It's not um, Felix. I mean, it's not Simon or Felix. It's none of those guys, it's Aiden. Um, and this is, this is even more interesting than I thought. Down here at the bottom of page 37. In my family, we just don't discuss things, Aiden said. Everything is below the surface, nothing comes out. 
So what's interesting about that is that Aiden is kind of an anti-hero. I mean, the guy is, you know, not not our favorite character in the book by any stretch. And he is, you know, known as being sort of very, um, you know, inscrutable and, and, and not uh, communicating very well and surprising poor Eileen with this breakup thing. But Simon is very much the same. And I think Felix, there's a sense that Felix is also kind of unavailable I mean, all all of the people in the book feel like that. And again, it's absolutely fine to have characters who are not really forthcoming or characters who are confused about their, um, you know, sort of interior lives. But it's it's tricky as a reader when you really want to know these characters um, to, to have to feel like information is being withheld. Um, I do need to take a very quick moment to say that I do find the characters very compelling and I found myself really wanting to know I was particularly interested, of course, not of course, I was particularly interested in um, the romance between Felix and uh, Simon because for some reason I was just really rooting for that to happen. Um, but, but you did, I mean, I was very engaged with them and I was very interested to see sort of how this was all going um, going to sort of play out, but I, I was frustrated by the fact that I didn't have more of a sense of, of who these people were and how they felt about each other. Um, on 242, apparently, we I don't remember what's on there, we have another, um, another uh, sort of example, another maybe explanation for why some of this, uh, this, this uh, you know, whatever, distance of our narrator here. Um, oh! This is great. Okay, so this is this idea, um, and it's in one of the letters where Alice is talking about, um, I think it's Alice, but we, one of the women is talking about the process of reading. And I think that you could take this paragraph um, and apply it to the distance of the narrator and, and assume that, in fact, what Sally Rooney is trying to do is to get the reader to engage with the text. So here it is um, on page 242, kind of middle of that second paragraph. Personally, I have to exercise a lot of agency in reading and understanding what I read and bearing it all in mind for long enough to make sense of the book as I go along. In no sense does it feel like a passive process by which beauty is transmitted to me without my involvement. It feels like an active effort of which an experience of beauty is the constructed result. So that is gorgeous, and I love this as an explanation. So um, if, we, if we're curious, if we're like, wait, what's up? Because you know, anything that we are doing in these lectures, it's fine to sort of note something, um, whether it's a certain trope or it's, um, you know, some sort of uh, figurative language or it's a plot device, whatever the thing may be. It's always important to say, so what? And in this case, if we're saying, okay, you know, this distance is maybe a little too much for Kimberly, but you know, what, what exactly is the function here? And I think it is interesting to think that this is a group of people where a lot is happening below the surface. I'm not sure if you can say that about all Irish people, but maybe. Um, and then there's this idea too of, of Sally Rooney really wanting us not to passively absorb this book, but to work in fact, and, and to remember, um, I hope she doesn't expect us to remember all the details because there are too many uh, that do not have enough significance for me. Uh, but there is a sense of, of um, needing to pay a little bit of attention and, and needing to sort of um, wrestle a little bit with these with these relationships of the people, which I think a lot of um, I think it works well in lots of ways. OK, so thank you very much for joining me for the second session of our um, deep dive into Sally Rooney's beautiful world. Where are you to hear more about the structure and more about the incredible prose? 
Um, and, and to talk a little bit about the sort of meta aspects of the novel, meaning um, Sally Rooney's incredible commentary on, on beauty and art, um, while also taking a close look at some incredible passages, tune in to part three um, and check out the YouTube channel if you want to see my homemade sweater. Uh, which is inspired by uh, the Aran Islands. It's not exactly Fair Isle, but it's, um, I like to think it's kind of, well, it's not Irish, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if it is or it isn't. Um, but but it felt to me at least like some something like, um, you know, something about the UK. And then also a, a whole series of images uh, that are both of Sally Rooney, but also of Ireland and uh, of select things that I have yanked right out of, uh, right out of the novel. Okay, thank you. Readers, listeners, welcome back to part three of our discussion of Sally Rooney's Beautiful World, Where Are You? Uh, today we're going to discuss, we're going to touch on a few of the concepts that have come up in the past uh, in terms of detail and narrative voice uh, and structure, but we're also going to take a bit of a deep dive into the meta aspects of the novel, um, which is always so interesting to me. It's really one of my favorite things to dive into we're also going to look um, at the gender roles in the novel, which I also found fascinating. And then we're going to talk about the close of the, fi- of the novel, as we, as we always do. Meta, for those of you who have not come across this term as it pertains to literature, is simply anything that's sort of a self-referential commentary on the thing that you are looking at. So if you were watching a movie and it had to do with making movies, then there may be some sort of meta aspects that come into play um, because the, the movie is essentially about itself. So Sally Rooney has said in many interviews that this book is, it's, it's very preoccupied with what has happened to her in terms of her success as a writer. And she's grappling with a lot of issues of fame and, uh, you know, the value of the novel uh, and beauty and literature and the evolution of literature and today's contemporary, um, you know, publishing scene. All of those things are are, uh, topics that she's kind of wrestling with throughout the book, especially in the epistolary parts where she's writing to Alice. These are very meta in the sense that when she's talking about, you know, whether or not the contemporary novel is something that can exist and something that has value, it's an interesting kind of twist because as the reader, you are holding this novel and she in fact has produced this novel and you are presumably invested in this novel and yet she's questioning whether or not it has any value. So there's kind of an interesting sort of uh, nuance that comes to light that I think is really is, is interesting and valuable to look at. We're going to turn to page 103 uh, to get a little sense of, of what exactly she is saying. At the bottom of 103, down here, she says, If novelists wrote honestly about their lives, no one would read novels, and quite rightly. Maybe then we would finally have to confront how wrong, how deeply philosophically wrong, the current system of literary production really is how it takes writers away from normal life, shuts the door behind them, and tells them again and again how special they are and how important their opinions must be. So this is interesting because she's not 
doing this. I mean, she's writing a novel about, you know, her, her entire kind of jam, Sally Rooney's jam, is all about writing about normal life. And she does it very, very well. And it's really what she is known for. So on some level, she's playing devil's advocate here in a way that I found a little insincere. Um, because you don't, I mean, I can't think of any novelists who are writing about the experience of fame and fortune. Um, in, in fact, I think it's, you know, a little kind of absurd, maybe is not even too strong a word, to think that novelists are, are in fact, thinking they are so successful. As someone who has written in the past and someone who knows her, you know, fair share of writers, both novelists and nonfiction writers, um, my sense is that they are a very, very insecure bunch. And even if they're getting a lot of feedback about how amazing they are, I, I mean, I do not mean to insult writers. And it, my, um, my sense is that insecurity is never really like a bad thing if you're talking about your professional life. They are always striving. You know, it's always sort of this like, you're only as good as your most recent novel and what are you working on now? And I don't think many have a sense that a lot of people are telling them how special they are. In fact, one friend who published her novel um, when she was very young, she was about 22, and she said it was really honestly one of the worst experiences of her life because she had a sense that her life would change and it didn't. And she said this thing, it's like, it, it wasn't as if she was walking down the street and people were singing, um, you know, little clips of her novel. It was more like she sent this novel out into the world and, and there was a deafening silence. So m my sense here is that, that um, Sally Rooney is having an experience of the writing life, which is totally rarefied. And even though Sally Rooney, um, you know, is making tons of money and is having adaptations from Hulu and is um, having all sorts of fame and all sorts of awards and she's going to all sorts of events, um, she is still writing very successfully about normal life. So there's a little bit of kind of disingenuousness here uh, that, that I just kind of point out. But I also think it's very nice. It's a nice reminder of of, of the sense of how important it is to write about normal life, about how that is that is what she wants to do and it is what she is continuing to do. I also think, you know, there's always, well, not always, you know, I came up through graduate school in a time when, you know, you had to say the author was dead and we were just looking at the text as a, as a discrete object that had no kind of biographical underpinnings. Um, I think those days are over and, you know, I think that's actually a good a good thing. But there is a kind of a voyeuristic sense. Sally Rooney talks a lot about how people will assume that she is any you know given number of her characters. And certainly she is anticipating people thinking that she is very much like. So I think there's part of, of um, you know, as the reader, you're like, oh, Sally Rooney is probably pretty great because she's not you know, she hasn't let all of this fame go to her head. She lives with her math teacher husband out in the middle of nowhere in Ireland and, um, you know, seems to have really kind of stayed grounded and true to her roots. So there is this kind of interesting play back and forth. Um, but I do think this notion of, uh, uh, of what the novel is for and, and whether or not it has value is interesting. So I also think this is so interesting too. Like if we look at the very next page on 103, she says, the problem with the contemporary Euro-American novel is that it relies for its structural integrity on suppressing the lived realities of most human beings on Earth. To confront the poverty and misery in which millions of people are forced to live, to put the fact of that poverty, that misery, side by side with the lives of the main characters of a novel, 
would be deemed either tasteless or simply artistically unsuccessful. Who can care, in short, what happens to the novel's protagonists when it's happening in the context of the increasingly fast, increasingly brutal exploitation of a majority of the human species? So this is a really interesting, this itself is this very kind of meta sentence, because basically what she's saying is what you have, you know, what you're holding in your hands, what you are reading right now should be artistically unsuccessful because I, the the writer slash narrator slash Alice, who is penning this letter, um, is reminding you that, you know, the bulk of people in this world are nowhere near privileged enough to be reading, um, you know, a novel by Sally Rooney. I, and I think that there there is a sense then of, of guilt that comes over the reader and a sense of of exactly what she's saying, which is that this kind of wider world, you know, is really in dire, dire straits that, that, that all of us are to a certain degree. And yet, um, you know, the people in Sally Rooney's novels are not the people who are suffering most acutely. But it was funny because when I read this, I was thinking like the, the question for me was more like how artistically satisfying is it when these two women, um, Alice and Eileen, in their letters do these kind of philosophical, you know, uh, I don't want to say navel gazy kind of things, but there, but there is a sense of them sort of like thinking about, you know, plastic and thinking about um, waste and thinking about climate change and thinking about people who are suffering poverty. And I wonder, I do not find those the most compelling parts of the novel. Again, I'm not a huge fan of the epistolary novel. So sometimes it feels very, a little gratuitous when we have these these women kind of reckoning with with these much, much larger issues. I found it more interesting, frankly, to, to look at the way that Rooney, in this case, is looking at class issues and the work lives of these four people. You know, you have Simon, who's very fairly successful, although he says his job is not important. Um, it seems relatively lucrative. At the end of the novel, the two of them are financially solvent. When we also find out that, for example, Felix is making more money than than Eileen is, but Eileen is doing a job that, you know, is arguably something that she she loves. And it's something that I think that Sally Rooney might think is a bit a bit self-indulgent because she's writing for or she's editing, not even writing for uh, a literary magazine that nobody reads. And then, of course, you have Alice, who is wildly successful in terms of money, but has um, some some real, you know, sort of serious mental health challenges and lives a life that is very isolated and, and is not all about, well, except when she's traveling. But but there's this kind of, there's an interesting examination of class and, and education and, um, you know, work that I find much more interesting than, than these kinds of exegesis that the two of them make about, you know, about poverty or about climate change or whatever these other things are. So I do, um, literally, I have the word artistically unsuccessful. It's all circled in my book with all this marginalia and all these exclamation marks because my sense is that that, that she maybe understood that, in fact, this is not going to be um, the most compelling parts of the book, and yet it felt extremely important for her to to acknowledge um, the fact that she is writing a novel um, about quote unquote normal people when these people are in fact globally speaking are immensely privileged. So um, we're going to move on from the sort of meta notions of the novel and we're going to take a look at gender roles. I found them so interesting. So 
I was surprised, frankly. And I remember, um, I don't remember anything about reading Normal People, but I remember the, the, the television show, literally because I watched it last week. But there's a whole sort of plot uh, part that has to do with with sort of masochism and with Marianne's desire to be hurt sexually and to and to be hurt sort of in general and in fact it's very much I think um, at the end of the novel of this novel where we have the conversation with Felix and Alec Alice and Felix is essentially saying I think you always want someone to hurt you um, and and she you know she's a bit ambivalent about that so. This seems like a preoccupation for Rooney, this idea of, of masochism in the context of sex and in the context of romance and um, intimate relationships between, between two people. So one quick note, speaking of sexual masochism and otherwise, I do think that Rooney writes well about sex. I find, um, I find writing about sex so distracting and so difficult. Um, which is funny because I actually, the book that I did write, gosh, in 2008, a zillion years ago, um, was about sex and parenting. And it, it, I think, you know, there's some like decently explicit parts in there. But it's, it, I find it so distracting because when I'm reading it, the language is so fully in the way of any kind of like, like I could never read erotica back when that was a thing. Um, it, it just, it's, I mean, it, it was one of those things where I just was so um, critical, frankly, of the language uh, that it just never, you know, it never kind of resonated with me. And I had a teacher at Bennington who gave the best advice, which was that when you are trying to write a sex scene, almost invariably the best thing to do is to simply say what is happening. Um, obviously, you're imagining what is happening for the most part. If you are writing a novel, then almost certainly, although you're, maybe it's drawn from your um, from your personal life. But it's it's simply, you know, you don't want to get lost in cliche and you don't want to um, get sort of over embellishments happening. Like really what you want to do is, is, is just describe what is happening. And I think apart from some details that seem superfluous and a little distracting to me, I think Rooney does do a good job of simply describing what is happening. And, um, you know, her the way that she writes about sex is, is critically acclaimed and people seem to really respond to it. I will say that I still find it like just kind of distracting and cringy and I'm always kind of like, oh my God, can we get through this? Whereas when I watched Normal People, the television series by Hulu, I was really taken not to sound crazy, I was really taken by how well done those sex scenes were. And there were a lot of them. And I, frankly, I really enjoyed all of them. Um, not only because the, the, the cinematography is so beautiful and the, and the composition of, of all of those scenes is so beautiful. They must have had a really great, um, you know, intimacy coordinator on set. Um, but, but it, I found it very, just very moving in a way that, that I did not find and do not find the, the writing on the page, which is interesting. It actually goes directly to the thing that Rooney says about, for example, when you look at a at a piece of art, um, like the Demoiselle de, de, oh my gosh, I can't remember it, d'Avignon, which, and if you stick around and check out the YouTube version, I have some some different images of art that come up in this book. But um, you know, when I when I found myself watching the television, I found real beauty and and real sort of emotion and you know a little arousal in those scenes that were on television because it was immediate I didn't it wasn't mediated by language it was simply something that I was receiving without um, without any kind of real um, effort and, and, and sort of this instantaneous you know transmissal 
this is sounding so weird. Uh, but when I'm reading in the novel, it, I just I found the language really sort of gets gets in my way. Um, so that's the little digression that I have about Rooney's um, very, I think, well done sex scenes. But I do find, again, um, I found that they are pretty revelatory in terms of some of these issues of gender. I mean, my question always, um, and many of you know this, I always sort of want to find out whether or not we could sort of define a novel as a feminist novel. And we do a lot of reading um, in all of these lectures uh, of, of women writing because I think it's very important to read women's voices. Um, but but I think there's a there's a you know a temptation to think that all women's writing is feminist writing, which is frankly not, of course, the case. Uh, but but it is interesting to me because a lot of what we read is very feminist, and a book like this that that has some kind of I'll call them hot takes, um, for lack of a better word. Um, I think it's it's great in lots of senses because I think there's room, you know, for masochism in a feminist outlook. I just, I, you know, I don't think those are necessarily contradictory, but it's interesting to take a look at, at what Rooney is saying, what's actually on the page. So let's take a look at page 144. So this is, um, I, oh gosh, need to see who this is. Okay, this is Alice talking. And um, speaking of hot takes, this is, um, I think, you know, in a, in a Me Too moment and, and just given our sensitivity these days of, of power and of really egregious behavior and the fact that we simply can't stand for it, um, on page 144, she has a sentence um, that I definitely circled as something to explore. She writes, I mean, honestly, I think if every man who had ever behaved somewhat poorly in a sexual context dropped dead tomorrow, there would be like 11 men left alive. And it's not only men, it's women too, and children, everyone. I suppose what I mean is, what if it's not only a small number of evil people who are out there waiting for their bad deeds to be exposed, what if it's all of us? So I love the sentiment of this. I love the sentiment of the complexity of people and the fact that no one is sort of above reproach at any given point. I did though, I just it's a little tricky this, I think if every man who had ever behaved somewhat poorly in a sexual context dropped dead tomorrow, there would be like 11 men left alive. This idea, I found it a little exculpatory. I found it sort of that she was like, everyone has done egregious things. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I mean, I guess you could argue that that is true, but that's not even the point for me here. It's more sort of like, you know, it's sort of letting men who are badly behaved sexually off the hook on some level that, that I found just a bit jarring there. And, and things definitely get more explicit. Let's look at 161. Not not sexually. I mean, they do. They get more explicit in terms of, uh, you know, sort of archetypally bad men behavior, meaning, you know, punishing women or, um, you know, some of the language that 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 Eileen ends up using uh, is 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 sort of you know, elevated here. By the way, I am very impressed. Um, you know, I'm someone who's been married now for a zillion years and, you know, I met my husband when I was 21 years old. There, I was impressed with a level of sort of consent that comes along. There's a lot in these, in all of these sex scenes, there's a lot of, you know, people asking each other, like, is this okay? Is that okay? Is this okay? Is that okay? Um, which is, is it, I liked that. I thought that was like a really, you know, an interesting window into the lives of a 30 year old right now as someone who's 53. Um, and I did, I did think that the level of communication and consent was impressive. Okay, on 161 up at the top here, this is Alice. 
Oh, sorry. Well, it's Alice together. Uh, no, my gosh. It's Eileen together with Simon. Simon says, but I think the fantasy is just that you're really helpless. And I'm like telling you what a good girl you are. I mean, I, I think that I get that. I get that that can be a fantasy for people, certainly. Um, and I don't have a problem with Rooney saying it. It just was sort of, it just is interesting to me to think about a, a woman who is writing about two strong women who also have, you know, lots and lots of complexity and they have, you know, their their insecurities and their concerns and their, um, you know, dissatisfactions with life. And it's maybe very fair. I, there are lots and lots of women, I'm sure, who share this fantasy. It's just interesting to me because there is, you know, a lot of sort of returning to this to this notion of, of her wanting to be protected. So he says, I'm like telling you what a good girl you are. Something about that language too, just I did not love. Um, and coyly, she looked up at him through her eyelashes. So that was hard for me because it, it, it's a bit cliche. Again, like I get sometimes like all caught up in the language here, but I'm looking up at him through the eyelashes. It's like a, there was some cliche there that was that was a little tricky for me. And what if I'm not a good girl? She said, you don't want to put me over your knee and punish me? He moved his hand over her thin, damp cotton, sorry, the thin, damp cotton of her underwear. Ah, but not to hurt you, he said, only to make you behave. So, I mean, I'm happy he doesn't want to hurt her, but I'm also just like, it's off-putting to think that, you know, this is a man and the fantasy is that he will make her behave. It just, it's a, it, it, it's just something that I was wanting to bring up because it's some, I was sort of grappling with this notion, um, you know, these are our heroines as complex and as, you know, sort of nuanced as they are. It just, it's interesting that there's this kind of, you know, this presence of this real fantasy of, in fact, being taken care of as a princess and as a daddy's girl and all of this kind of stuff. Um, when I think that's a, a fantasy that maybe fewer and fewer, hopefully, young women are are feeling like that's you know part of their um, their desire. And maybe I'm naive. Maybe maybe lots of people um, feel like this. Okay. And then um, on two eighty five, we have a continuation of their thing. So this is Simon. I mean, even when we do make love, I sometimes feel like it's something that I'm doing to you for my own reasons. And maybe you get some kind of innocent physical pleasure out of it. I hope you do. But for me, it's different. So this is an example. I mean, I didn't love this like innocent pleasure. I'm like, why is she innocent? Why? I mean, she's 29 years old. She is someone who has, you know, had, you know, different sexual experiences with different men. I'm not sure like why this innocent pleasure is, is important. But for me, it's different. This was one of those ambiguities where I was not... I, I don't actually totally know what she means there. I mean, it says sometimes it feels like I'm doing it to you for my own reasons. Um, and I'm a little bit like, what are those reasons? Is it that he wants to dominate her? Is it that, you know, he wants to treat her like a princess? Um, but this idea of it's different for me and I have um, my own reasons, I found the fact that I couldn't access any of Simon's interiority was frustrating. I know you're going to say that's sexist. She was laughing. Her mouth was open. It is sexist, she said. Not that I mind. It's flattering. Like you were saying, you have this primal desire to subjugate and possess me. It's very masculine. I think it's sexy. So again, I don't have a problem with one of our main... I mean, I say that, and, and in fact, the amount of time I'm spending on it would argue perhaps that I have a slight problem with it. I don't have a problem. <laughs> This is very um, contradictory, which I think speaks to the complexity of what Sally Rooney is trying to bring up for us. It's interesting to look at 
this kind of desire being so vocalized in a moment when I think that a lot of, um, you know, writers of, of both sexes are talking more about women's empowerment um, and, and sort of, you know, being critical of these kinds of fantasies of subjugation and, you know, male domination. Um, and so it's interesting to me that one of Rooney's, n- not only one of the heroines, but the woman who at the end of the novel is in fact our example of marriage and family and maternity. So you have this kind of very traditional outcome with not only do we have a marriage at the end of the novel, which is very much like a like in the old school sort of comedy thing as opposed to tragedy. So that, you know, a comedy is something that ends with marriage. It's like a rom-com. It kind of puts the whole book into that genre a bit. This idea that, you know, it's a happy ending because she is in love with this man. They're not married, but Simon wants to get married. You know, she's going to have this child. They are going to generate, you know, in this, the the plan is degenerating, but they're going to generate another child, another being, another generation. But this is a woman and a man where it's a very traditional sense of sort of one, um, you know, subjugating and dominating the other who is a helpless princess literally in those words. So it's a, you know, we see it throughout the novel. And then certainly the way that the novel closes really kind of hammers home this idea that, um, you know, that the happy ending is somewhat dependent on these very traditional male and female sexist roles, in fact. Okay, we're going to look at 332 and 333 briefly. We're going to switch now from Eileen and Simon to Alice and Felix. Um, So, this was interesting to me, too, because Alice is someone who's very independent, um, who is, you know, off by herself, who has overcome a lot of obstacles, who is very successful, who, uh, you know, is able to sort of um, operate well in the world. She's traveling. She's, you know, good at her job. She's very contemplative about her job. She's very self-aware. Uh, so she's someone who we see as as a sort of a beacon, if you will, of independence and of strength in some ways, even though we know, in fact, that she had a mental health crisis that landed her in the hospital, but she's sort of overcome that. What's interesting to me is that toward the end of the novel here, the resolution that we have for Alice has everything to do with Felix. So we have this idea of Alice being essentially kind of rescued by him. You know, they, the, the four of them are together. Things are getting complicated. You know, Eileen is feeling left out and feeling um, like information is being withheld from her because she doesn't understand um, all that is going on with Alice, which I really, um, you know, I felt for Eileen. I identified with that. But we have Felix down here at the bottom of 333, really sort of emphasizing this idea of him as being this kind of, you know, quiet, heroic figure. Felix says, It's like you're trying to make yourself miserable, and maybe you want someone to fuck you over and hurt you. At least that would make sense why you would pick me out, because you think I'm the type of person who could do that, or would want to. She was standing at the sink saying nothing. It's interesting to me that he's the one, um, you know, he has this beautiful singing voice and his voice is coming more and more to the fore as the novel is moving on. And Alice's voice, you know, she's saying, I'm not sure I'm going to write a novel. Um, and, and in lots of these passages, she's she's getting a little more quiet. Um, so we see his voice kind of taking over in ways that, that you know, kind of square with this idea of the, the heroic male figure. Like I'm the type of person who could do that or would want to. She was standing at the sink saying nothing. Slowly, he nodded his head, 
So again, you know, he's affirming his own, um, you know, his own thesis here. Well, I'm not going to, he said. If that's what you want, I'm sorry. He cleared his throat and added, and I don't think you like me more. So there's this debate um, this entire time about sort of, you know, does she love him more than he loves her? And, you know, there's a class issue that's at play and there's this idea that she's very intimidating. So there's this interesting dynamic that is set up where she both is very intimidating to him, but there's also this idea, um, you know, she says several times, you know, I love you. And he says, I know you do, you know, that kind of interplay. So, so there's this sense of her both as being sort of superior in some ways, more confident, more successful monetarily. And in terms of career, he is this kind of working class, you know, um, ne'er-do-well in lots of ways, um, but he's very confident in the fact that she loves him. And I don't think you like me more. I think we like each other the same. I know I don't show it in my actions all the time, but I can try to be better on that. And I will try, and I will try. I love you, all right? So I like the idea here of them sort of, you know, being on equal footing, but there's a um, there's also a sense that, that he is the one who's going to sort of take care of her. He's the one who's going to, you know, to sort of make everything okay. It, you know, he says he's going to stand by her and this is only a little episode. And I mean, she's literally saying, I feel like I'm going to kill myself. And he's like, no, 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 you're not. So there, there is a sense even with Alice um, and Felix that also the man is sort of both heroic and kind of the savior hero guy, um, but also that the woman, you know, is is you know in in crisis and is 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 really sort of needy in in um, many ways. So we're going to look um, now at the close of the novel. We're approaching the end of our half hour here. And I, I love, I think it's, you know, it's obviously important to take a look at the final paragraph of any novel that we're reading together. But in this case, I think it's really interesting to look back. This is, um, you know, satisfying novels often have sort of change and, and um, like a nice character arc where something is discovered or something is affirmed by the end of the novel. And in this case, it is interesting because I, I like the sort of it's not a rom-com kind of ending here because in fact the novel is much quieter and it's not quite so bubbly and all of that that you would expect um well there are lots of differences between this and a romantic comedy but there is this sense of um in the old school kind of shakespearean mode of comedy versus tragedy because we are ending here with a wedding so on page 353 sorry not a wedding but like a marriage of of like-minded folks or something um so at the end here on 353 this is Eileen, who's having the last word. I suppose I think that having a child is simply the most ordinary thing I can imagine doing. And I want that to prove that the most ordinary thing about human beings is not violence or greed, but love and care. To prove it to whom, I wonder. Myself, maybe. Anyway, no one else knows, and we're not going to tell anyone for a few more weeks, except for you and Felix. You can tell him if you want, of course, or Simon can tell him on the phone. I know that it's not the life you imagined for me, Alice, buying a house and having children with a boy I grew up with. It's not the life I used to imagine for myself either, but it's the life I have, the only one. And as I write you this message, I'm very happy, all my love. 
So I do, I love this ending in lots of ways. It's, you know, there's this idea of, of Sally Rooney as being very invested in, in normal things and ordinary things. And so we do have this kind of, this very kind of ordinary life uh, that, that she's very excited about, that Eileen is very excited about in the end. And you also have a sense that Alice and Felix, you know, there's talk of Alice buying the rectory. There's talk of them kind of settling down. Felix is saying, I'm not going to go anywhere and I'm going to love you well. Um, so you have a sense of both of these couples, you know, although we have only Eileen's, you know, words here, both of these couples as having this kind of, you know, certain measure of, of, of contentment in terms of their romantic and intimate attachments. I also like, too, that there's this idea, there's a, this conversation, um, we're having the epistolary novels where they are actually succeeding in communicating with each other. And then there's this idea that, you know, Simon and um, Felix are close enough friends that they could talk on the telephone. But there's a nice kind of echo here of those first couple of scenes where we have people who are on telephones, mostly the screens thereof, but they're, um, you know, attempting to communicate with uh, various different levels of success. So you have this sense here of this intimate secret that the four of them all share that is, you know, life affirming and sort of planet affirming. So this is a book that could have ended on a very dark note and in fact is ending on this very, very sort of optimistic note that's hitting lots and lots of traditional, lots of traditional notes. You've got the house, you've got the, um, you know, the, the somewhat kind of protective, not to say domineering husband figure. You've got you know, the young woman who's madly in love with this person she's known forever, and in fact, they are going to have a child. So, and she says explicitly, I'm very happy. And I love the fact that um, at the end, it says, all my love. You have this sense, there's not Eileen at the end. You can imagine how different that would be. But this idea of all my love as sending all of this love out into the world. So she's sending it certainly out to Alice. But there also is this sense that Eileen is someone who's going to um, be much happier in herself. And she's going to have this child. And she and Simon, um, you know, there, there's going to be love that's sort of multiplying. And love that is, you know, that's, that's kind of redounding and, and returning to all four of these people. Which is really it's a beautiful note to end on. So I think that we, this idea of beautiful world, where are you? I think you can say that, you know, they have found it in this very ordinary life. And we had a glimpse of that when the two women are hugging and Rooney says, you know, maybe they, maybe they're always surrounded by beauty and maybe they just are sort of, maybe they are aware of it and maybe they're not. In, but at the end of the book, we do have this sense of, of this beautiful world, in fact, is, is where, you know, where the hearth is. Home is where the hearth, heart heart is hearth home is where the hearth is anyway with <laughs> not to end on such a weird note um but i really i am very very happy uh that you've hung in um, until this point and i'm really happy for the opportunity to take a closer look at rooney uh and i do have really newfound appreciation for a lot of her talents and a lot of the excellent things she's doing and i'm also happy to solve the mystery of of some of the reasons why her prose uh, didn't seem to resonate with me the way that it had with some other people, um, but I really appreciate you having spent the time. If you want to check out some cool uh, images of a rectory in Ireland, um, not to mention my homemade sweater, if you're not already on the YouTube channel, do check out the YouTube channel. And I hope to see you soon to talk about another incredible piece of literature. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five-minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses 
or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.